Come, Lord Jesus. That's the cry, isn't it, of the church in Revelation. We'll come to that in, uh, in just a little moment or two. I've been asked to say something on Revelation 12. Uh, apparently, you've all struggled with... No, yeah, I'm sure you haven't. I'm sure you've had a good time looking at Revelation 12. Um, it's not the easiest of chapters, so it takes a little while to get under some understanding, but I hope you will have realized... That Revelation 12, the key to it, as we said earlier, the key to all Revelation is looking back at the Old Testament. And uh, what you see in Revelation 12 is what you might call the ultimate conflict. So verse 1, a greater wondrous sign appeared in heaven. And we're told, verse 3, here is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head, and we're told she was about to give birth. And we're introduced to this, uh, this woman who seems to represent the people of God. So that was the reference to Joseph's dream. You remember how he <laughs> rather humbly announces his dream to his mum and dad and his brothers <laughs> and they're not too they're not best pleased at the idea that their stars and mum and dad's sun and moon are going to bow down to his star uh, but that's the reference so the people of God the faithful people of God the patriarchs uh, the people of God in Israel this is the this seems to be the people who've gone through a terrible time remember that they've they were thrown into exile they were thrown out of the land they come back and they're still pregnant with hope why? Because there's a promised Messiah who's coming, who will come from them. So the woman is about to give birth. She's pregnant with hope, pregnant with the Messiah that will come from her. And we're told the dragon, well, it's not too difficult to work out who the dragon is, because we're told, which is rather helpful, isn't it? Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And he's there. It's almost as though he knows. We saw that passage, didn't we? Genesis 3 where he's cursed, he's told that there will come one who will crush his head, who will deal him a mortal blow. And it's almost as though he's there waiting for uh, this child to come. Psalm 2, remember, the reference to ruling all the nations with an iron scepter. This child is the Messiah. And what happens on earth um, leads to a victory in heaven. So there's a definite starting point. John gives us two signals that precipitate it. Verse 5, the woman gives birth to a son. Her child is snatched up to God and his throne. So the birth of Jesus and then the ascension to heaven. The dragon fails to stop the mission of God's Messiah. It was a successful mission. And that gives Michael the signal to attack. So the second signal there is in verse 6. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, in Jewish literature, three and a half years, as a little bit later it appears, time, times, and half a time, 1,260 uh, days, they all are code for the period when God's people suffer under pagan rule. That had happened in 167 to 164 B.C., when under the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, there had been a horrific period 
of suffering and persecution for God's people. And so whenever you see that phrase, one, two, six, zero days, or a time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years, it's as though John is saying, we think back to the period in Israel's history when it was a period of terrible persecution under pagan rule, godless government. And that's the sort of time that he thinks of. That's what he refers to. So it's going to be like that, is what he's saying. Verse 6 is a picture of God's people no longer pregnant. The Messiah has come. God has provided for his woman, his people, a secure refuge away from the demonic forces. So there are two signals that lead to this war in heaven. It's the victory of Jesus on earth and the security of the church despite Satan's attack. And it's after those two events that verse 7 occurs, which is war in heaven. So Satan's authority is not broken by Michael's power in heaven. It's not that Michael is strong and, and able, but rather Michael is able to win only because of Jesus and the church's victory on earth. And if you're in any doubt about that, then look at the song which we're given in verses 10 to 11, which is the songs are always the key, you see, to explaining it. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. This is when the devil has been thrown down and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night have been held down. They overcame him. Who is the they? Michael and his angels? No. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is the church who overcome the dragon, says John. And uh, that seems to be what's going on. Now what you get in verse 12 is the devil, knowing that his time is short is filled with fury. And so what he does is he throws everything at the church. Knowing that he will be defeated, he vents his anger on God's people. So verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. So the persecution of the church is not actually a sign of Satan's strength. It's actually a sign of his weakness. It's as though he's in his death throes, flailing around, trying to do as much damage as he can. But actually, he can't succeed because he's dying. But he'll do his best to score a few black eyes before he's finally, you know, counted out. Yeah? And verse 14, we're told, drawing on images from the Exodus and the Old Testament, do you remember how God says to his people, I carried you on eagle's wings. You know, I rescued you. I brought you out. And do you remember how um, God rescues his people through the Red Sea, trying to engulf uh, his people? But actually, God keeps his people safe. He takes them to, to a place of refuge where she cannot be destroyed by Satan's power. And John is telling us that nothing, not even demons or hell itself, can harm us ultimately. If we're trusting Jesus, the Messiah is reigning. He's building his kingdom. But Satan is getting angrier. And he knows he's only got a limited time left. So verse 17, what does he do? He rampages around the world to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now that's what the sufferings of the church in the last days are all about. They are, this is Satan's last ditch stand against the advance of God's kingdom. He knows his days are numbered. 
It's a painful experience for the church, yes. But it's not a threat to her existence because the devil has suffered a mortal blow. And although he thrashes around, he is dying. So that's Revelation 12. I hope, I'm sure you did come up with much of that as you looked at it. And I hope you were encouraged by it. Well, we're in the, in the home straight now. So if you'll turn to your booklet and to page 8, we'll look together at God's word once more. As we uh, open up God's word, let's ask for his help. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that as we look at this portion of your word, though there's much that perhaps initially we find difficult to grapple with, it's not familiar imagery. Some of the symbols are quite difficult for us to grasp, at least first of all. We thank you that as we look at it and as we interpret it in the light of what you've told us in the Old Testament and through Jesus, you give us hope. And we pray that this might not just be a day where we fill our heads with knowledge about your word, though we thank you for it, but we ask that it might be a day when your word transforms our way of looking at your world and it gives us confidence and hope to live for you no matter what the pressures are that are coming our way. So please, we pray, be our teacher by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes so that we might understand wonderful things from your word and thrill us with Jesus and with the hope that you have before us so that we might in our day patiently endure and be faithful right to the end ready and waiting for Jesus to return in whose name we pray amen you know there are different types of literature in the bible and i think that's just so fantastic isn't isn't it do you think that god isn't it brilliant that we haven't got just a book of law or we haven't got um you know just a whole set of string of quotations the Bible is, well, a lot of it is story, isn't it? It's about real life people. God really stepping into history and dealing with real people. People who were flawed, like you and me. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? Yes? Hello? We are still awake, aren't we? We're still awake. That's great. If somebody nods off to sleep next to you, just, just let them carry on. <laughs> That's fine. Just be kind. They've obviously, obviously had a hard week. You know, in my congregation, there are lots of, we have lots of uh, young babies. And the parents always come up to me and they say, Do you know, it's amazing. Because we're up all night and the kids are screaming and we never get them to sleep. But they say, we come to church and immediately open your mouth. <laughs> so I do have this soporific effect. So if you all start falling asleep, I suppose I'm supposed to take it as a compliment, but there we are. If you can never sleep, listen to my sermons online. <laughs> and the great thing, why, why did I talk about that? No idea. Anyway, um, so you've, we've got all sorts of different types of literature in the Bible. And that speaks about our great God, doesn't it? How varied he is. He's made us. You know, his creation, it isn't boring, is it? You look at a tree. And you look at a leaf, and there's no one leaf the same as any other, is there? I mean, what a God who can do that. And you look at us. I mean, just look, take a look for a moment. Just have a look around and see who, you know, look at, look at one another. Aren't we amazing? Don't you think? 
you know, God, God's peculiar people. <laughs> That's how the, the old version puts it, isn't it? <laughs> we are a very peculiar people. No, no, no. But we're all different from, from one another. Isn't that amazing that every single one of us is different? You know, I've got three daughters, and um, each is so different to the other. And we're all so complicated, aren't we? But the Bible itself speaks of a God who creates in variety. And so we've got all sorts of different types of literature. And, you know, some literature you connect with a little, you know, different parts of us will connect with different bits. And they speak um, in different ways, partly because they're connecting with us in different ways. So the book of Revelation, it's not a sort of... um, architect's drawing, you know, with all the detail there. And some people approach Revelation like that. You know, here it is with all the detail. It's like a sort of very technical, detailed drawing of everything. Revelation, to my mind, is something, it's like a sort of impressionist painting. You know, you're not supposed to go right up close to look at the detail. You're supposed to stand right back. Ah. And just be overwhelmed by it. I think that's the point of Revelation. You know, we get into detailed study. What does this word mean and what does that word mean? And there may be some value in that. But actually, I think the whole point of it is to step back and look at the panorama of what God is doing in the world. I think that's the point. I think we are supposed to be blown away by Revelation. Whether it's standing and looking at Jesus, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. You know, we get that vision in Revelation 1. Whether it's we come to the throne room in chapters 4 and 5 and we see the throne room and the one seated on the throne or we, the drama in chapter 5, you remember we saw that, of the scroll, which must be opened if God's purposes for salvation and judgment are to be brought to bear. If God's going to bring his kingdom into this world, if God... If the answer to God's prayer, the prayer that we pray in the Lord's Prayer, you know, let your kingdom come. If that's going to happen, the scroll has got to be opened. And you get the drama of, and you get to feel, don't you? John is weeping. We're meant to feel. The Bi- I hope the Bible moves you. I hope we don't just say, oh yeah, there we are, John wept. <laughs> no, it's supposed to connect with our feelings, with our emotions. I think Revelation... Um, amongst all the books in the Bible does that. It's meant to. It's why it's full of songs. Why do we sing? Why don't we just stand up and speak? We sing because we're meant to involve all of our personalities in the praise of God, which involves our emotions. Oh, we don't want to be carried away by our emotions and get, get emotional or emotionalism. But God has made us with emotions. And in Revelation, as we sing the songs... You know, much of the songs we've sung, amazing, isn't it? Actually, when you start thinking about it, how many of the songs that we sing are drawn from the songs in Revelation. And that's a good thing, brilliant thing. So we're supposed to feel Revelation. And we're supposed to be overwhelmed by God and his sovereignty and his grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus. And not full of fear, but full of hope as we patiently endure and wait for this kingdom that is to come. And when we get there in chapters 21 and 22, wow, I mean, it's just wonderful stuff. Just amazing. So, 
none of that was in my notes. I'm sorry about that. Right, okay, so where have we come? Remember, remember the journey that we've been traveling as we've been working our way through Revelation. John has shown us the control room of heaven, chapters 4 and 5, the one who triumphed and overcame and can bring about God's purposes in the scroll of destiny. Those purposes are both judgment now, because God sends judgments, remember, as warnings to a rebellious world, pleading, trumpeting, heralding. There is a God who's made you. Turn back to him. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus. Come to him. But ultimately, judgment will come on the final day when he will deal fully with sin and evil and all rebellion against his rule. And when his people, who have faithfully and patiently endured suffering for him, will finally enter into the glory of his everlasting kingdom. We've seen a series of sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets. But just before John shows us the final series of seven, the seven bowls bowls of plagues, just before he shows us that history won't go on and on and on in these series of cycles, there will be an end finally, he's taken us to heaven. That's what he did, you remember, in chapters 11, 19 to 15, verse 4. And he's shown us that behind the realities of what we see on earth is an almighty spiritual battle going on. The Lord Jesus, as we saw just now in Revelation 12, has dealt Satan a mortal blow. He's dying. But as he goes, he will do his worst, and the church will feel it. So in chapters 15 to 22, the last section, we get to see what the world is coming to. We're allowed to see the end. Chapter 15, verse 5, to chapter 16, verse 1, we now see God's wrath from heaven in all its horror. We're allowed to see the end. Bowls of plagues, so chapter 15, verse 5, takes up, takes up remember, where chapter 11, verse 19, left off. All of that is a sort of excursus. He's gone off to show you heaven. Now he's coming back. Here in verse 5 of chapter 15 are seven plagues and they are described in Old Testament language and it's nothing less than horrific. What comes across very clearly with this seven is that now God's anger is even more intense. For instance, in the earlier sevens, we read of a quarter of the world's population being killed or a third. The vast majority escape. But with these seven bowls, there is no mention of any exceptions. In verse 2, the painful of chapter 16, that is, the painful sores break out on any and all who have the mark of the beast. There are no exceptions. In verse 10, the entire domain of the beast is engulfed in darkness. There are no exceptions. And there's another difference, too, in this cycle of, of seven bowls of plagues. After the sixth seal was broken... And after the sixth trumpet was sounded, there was a pause. Do you remember that? Silence in heaven, yes? A sign that God was holding back and waiting, willing to give more time for the world to turn and repent and turn back to him. But in these last plagues, there's no mention of any pause. So have a look at verse 17 of chapter 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. 
Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. Then, if you've ever seen on maybe on the television, if you've been watching the um, the open, you know the golf. And as the golfer reaches the end of his round, he's won the game. And what does he do? He gets hold of the ball, doesn't he? And he slings it into the air. It's done. It's over. Got through the competition. And so the angel picks up the last ball and throws it into the air. It's all over. God's patience is finally exhausted. This is the final plague. This is the world's last last chance. So in chapter 16 and verses 2 to 9, we see bowls 1 to 4 on the earth, the sea, fresh waters, and the sun. Now they're similar to the judgments which we saw with the seven trumpets when the seven trumpets announced judgment. But this time, as I say, there is now no restraint. In verses 10 to 11 of chapter 16 comes bowl number 5, poured out this time on the throne of the beast. And the result is his kingdom is plunged into darkness, all of it. And then in verses 12 to 16, bowl number 6 is poured out on the Euphrates River. And this brings about Armageddon. So look at verse 12 of chapter 16 with me. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Verse 14. They go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now many people believe that these verses predict a gigantic world war which will usher in the end. And it will be centered around the Middle East and occur just before Christ's return. Maybe that is how it will happen. Maybe. But let me point a few things out which might urge us to be a little bit cautious. First, something like this was also described when the sixth trumpet was sounded back in chapter 9. In both cases... So you can turn back to chapter 9 if you like. Verse 13, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who'd been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow with sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict Injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. We saw that a little earlier. So something like what is described in chapter 16 with Armageddon is described here with some kind of demonically inspired invasion which occurs from the other side of the river Euphrates. The fact that you get this mentioned twice within the patterns of sevens 
suggests to me that it isn't a single event. It's once more a repeated feature in these cycles of judgment, what Jesus called wars and rumors of wars. And in the same way, these references to places in the Middle East in chapter 16, I think, are symbolic. The river Euphrates marked the eastern border of the Roman Empire. Beyond that lay the Parthians, one of Rome's most dangerous enemies. And Rome, Rome in John's day was haunted by the fear of an invasion that would come across the river Euphrates by the Parthian kings from the east. So John may simply be painting a picture of military insecurity. Defences that seem invincible to great powers will actually, in the end, let them down. The same goes for Armageddon. Where Armageddon is, we don't know. The nearest we can translate this Hebrew word is to mean Mount Megiddo. And Megiddo was a place where decisive battles were fought in history. But the trouble is... Megiddo isn't a mountain. It's actually just about the flattest place you can find on earth. <laughs> so Armageddon probably isn't a literal place. Rather as Babylon in Revelation isn't meant to be taken literally as Babylon. Babylon stands for godless regimes all down the years. Governments who set themselves up in opposition to God and thought they were God. Armageddon may simply stand for the arena in which all those terrible wars into which godless regimes have plunged the world over the centuries have taken place. Maybe symbolic for that. So we don't have to push these verses into one event in the future. Wars and rumors of wars, as Jesus himself said, are the mark of these end times. But the central message that John teaches here is quite plain. God must win. He will win. But it will come at a time when we least expect it. Look at verse 15 of chapter 16. Where God says, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. That's a strange little verse which John throws in at this point. Slightly odd, isn't it? But I think it's quite helpful. See, some Christians argue that Christ will return at the end of a chain of events that are clearly predicted in Scripture, including Armageddon. And once these events have started, Christians will know that Christ is about to come and will even be able to date it. But you see, if that were true, why would you ever need verse 15? Because the point about a thief is that you don't know when he's coming. That's precisely the point, isn't it? And in fact, Jesus uses this analogy himself, doesn't he? And so does Peter. If you knew the thief was coming, you would have been prepared, wouldn't you? He wouldn't have robbed you. But the point is, nobody knows when he's coming. It'll catch everyone off their guard. In fact, the verse in the original is really quite blunt. You could almost translate it as, be ready and don't get caught with your trousers down. We don't know when Christ will come to win. And revelation is not given to us so that we can work out the precise timetable. That's not the point. 
So the only sensible approach is to always be ready. For those who are not ready will be swept away. Which brings us to verses 17 to 21 where we see the final seventh bowl of God's plagues being poured out and this time it's on Babylon. Remember Babylon stands for godless regimes who set themselves up against God. Verse 21, from the sky huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And men cursed God on account of the plague. When Christ returns, God must win. God will win. There's no doubt about it, says John. But the tragedy is that even when Babylon, the pinnacle of human achievement, is collapsing all around them, still people will curse God and find no room for repentance. As we come to chapter 17 to 22, the last part of Revelation, the scene is dominated by two cities. You could call it a tale of two cities. That would be a good title for a book, wouldn't it? Oh, I think there's one that's already been written. Sorry, forgive me. These cities are symbolized by two women. As John looks back, that's chapter 17 and 18, He sees Babylon, the city which stands for godless civilization all through the ages. And she's pictured as a brazen prostitute. As John looks forward, that's in chapters 21 and 22, he sees the other city, a new Jerusalem, the redeemed people of God, the church. And she is pictured as a beautiful bride. And between these two cities... pictured as two women there is a great rift and that's chapters 19 and 20 and that's the coming of Christ with his victory over evil and the final judgment and that's really where John is standing looking if you like as he describes these two cities and these two women looking both ways looking back at chapters 17 and 18 looking forward to chapters 21 and 22, two very different cities facing two very different destinies. So let's come to chapters 17 to 19 where we see Babylon, the prostitute. In chapter 17 and verses 1 to 6, we're given a vision by an angel carrying one of the seven bowls. It's a vision of Babylon, godless government at its worst. And you'll see that not only is she alluring, but she seeks to exert her influence, verse 2, over all the people's of the earth, all the inhabitants of the earth. She's morally decadent, and she's rich, verse 4. She's dressed in purple and scarlet. She's glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls, and she holds a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And verse 6, she's anti-Christian. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. But then in verses 7 to 18, we get the interpretation of the vision. And look at what he says in verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. Behind all the political intrigues, 
behind all the economic disasters. There's nothing for Christians to fear at root because God is the one actually who's in control. He will bring about Babylon's downfall. It's all been part of his plan. And this is Babylon's future. But if we belong to Jesus Christ, though this is her future, Babylon's future, she will be destroyed, she will be brought down, it's not ours. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, the Lamb, are described in verse 14. We're told the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Now, brothers and sisters, that is our destiny. Not only to outlast the prostitute, but actually to overcome the beast and to reign with Jesus, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, to overcome with the one who overcomes for us. You see? And so when we come to chapter 18 and we see Babylon fall, finally, it's little wonder that in verse 20, the heavens and God's people are called to rejoice. You see that in verse 20? Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged Babylon for the way she treated you. They sing in chapter 19, the Hallelujah Chorus. Did you know this is where... Handel got his Hallelujah Chorus from, chapter 19. There we are, verse 1. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, that's Babylon, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. There is rejoicing when Babylon is defeated, when the powers of evil that have set themselves up against God are finally judged and brought down. Hallelujah. It's judgment day. That's how the Bible puts it. We will rejoice when we see God act to judge. At last, at last, evil is being dealt with. And God is seen to be just. And God is righting the wrongs. Praise God for that day. Don't we long for that day? When the evil that we see going on and the the way in which God's people are treated, when those perpetrators are finally dealt with justly and rightly as they should be. Well, that's not where the hallelujah stops. The hallelujah carries on. Because in verses 6 to 10, all eyes are no longer on the prostitute, Babylon. All our eyes are on another woman, a beautiful bride. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? Because the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. 
Hallelujah. The wedding day is coming. Now we're not there yet. We've just been told about the invitation. We've been given the invitation to the wedding. There's still a chance to do an RSVP. We'll come to the wedding itself in just a moment, but we're not quite there yet. But do you see, judgment on God's enemies has now brought about salvation for God's people. And that's always the way, isn't it? Do you remember how God rescues his people out of Egypt? He saves them through the Red Sea, doesn't he? But what happens as they come through the Red Sea? They're being pursued, aren't they? By Pharaoh's army. So what happens as God's people come out of the Red Sea? The waters cover Pharaoh's army and they're washed away. Salvation for God's people. Judgment on those who've come after them. And that's how it is in the Bible. Salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. God saves his people as he judges his people's enemies. God judges his his people's enemies as he saves his people. Before we come to the wedding, before it's time to celebrate, Babylon might have been judged, but there needs to be a final showdown, and we get that in chapters 19 to 21. So in chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, John sees, and now there's nothing hidden, because heaven now is wide open, and there's a rider on a white horse, and he's called Faithful and True, and the Word of God, so no prizes for guessing who this is. You know the story of the Sunday school and how the, you know, the Sunday school teacher is trying to teach his kids a few things and he says, um, you know, what's, the, uh, what's furry and runs up trees? And they look at him. What's furry and runs up trees and eats nuts? Nothing. He says, it's very easy. What's furry and runs up trees and eats nuts and has a bushy tail? And then one little boy sort of puts his hand up rather gingerly and he says, I know the, I know the answer's Jesus. <laughs> but it sounds like a squirrel to me. No prizes for guessing who this rider is on the white horse who's called Faithful and True and the Word of God. Not the squirrel, it's Jesus. Yes, you're right. And he's dressed ready for battle. And so in verses 17 to 21, that battle now takes place. Except when you actually come to it, it's not really a contest at all. There's no real showdown. The beasts and the kings gather to make war, verse 19, against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast and the false prophet, that's the beast from the earth, are captured and then they're thrown into the lake of fire. No contest, is it? There's no struggle, there's no fight. It wouldn't have made a very good Hollywood movie, I'm afraid. Because actually it's a walkover. And that's the truth, isn't it? Because the truth is that Satan doesn't have any real power at all, really. And notice how the rider defeats them, verse 21, with the sword that came out of his mouth. Such is the power of Jesus that he creates the world with a word. And he sustains the world with his word. And do you remember when he was on the earth in the days of his flesh in his ministry, how Jesus just says the word, and the centurion knows this, doesn't he? He said, just say the word, and my servant will be healed, even though the servant is, you know, somewhere away. He's grasped something about Jesus, that Jesus just needs to speak, and it'll happen. 
And here Jesus just needs to speak. And Satan is defeated by the breath of his mouth. Now in chapter 20 we reach a controversial passage over which Christians take different views. We finally come to the millennium. The argument centers around the thousand years. And there are basically three opinions. Some believe that John, this is the pre-millennial view, some believe that John intends to teach us that there is going to be a long period before the coming of Christ and the eventual arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. And that during that period of a thousand years, Christians will be literally raised from the dead and the devil will be literally locked up so that the world will enjoy the rule of Christ. There'll be no devil for a thousand years. And then at the end of a thousand years, the devil will be let loose and will do his worst and then there'll be judgment and then will come the salvation of God and God's kingdom forever. Now that's known as premillennialism. Premillennialism because Christ will come before the thousand year reign. Okay. Postmillennialism also believes in the literal 1,000 year reign, but they think Christ will return after the 1,000 years, post, you see, the 1,000 years. Amillennialists, or are millennialists, believe that like so much in Revelation, we're not meant to take this literally. Now, personally, I find that the most convincing view, most persuasive. People who, who hold this view argue that this release of Satan in verse 7 is similar to the release of demons in preparation for the battle of Armageddon that we saw in chapter 16. Does it make sense for there to be two battles? One before the millennium to deal with the beast and one after the millennium to deal with the devil? There's no evidence in the rest of the New Testament for that. And nor is there any evidence of the rest of the New Testament for a thousand year reign. You will search your Bibles in vain to find anywhere else other than these verses that refer to a literal or a a 1,000 year reign. The Bible simply divides time into two ages. This age and the age to come. And of course Revelation is a book of symbolism. If we're to take this number 1,000 literally then it would fly in the face of every other number that we've had to interpret along the way, wouldn't it? It would mean that we'd have to take all the other numbers literally as well. Really? We meant to mean that? So you end up becoming a Jehovah's Witness. Only only 144,000 in heaven. Is that right? And then they say, they get rounded by saying, well, of course, it's 144,000 in heaven, but that's a new heavens and a new earth. So the really special ones get to heaven in the 144,000 and then the rest of us who don't do all our door knocking end up on earth. Uh, We laugh, but these poor guys, you know, what a terrible religion to belong to. And they need the saviour, don't they? They need to be set free from that error that they've been taught. Many of them are... Do you know many in the UK, I don't know whether it works, whether it... Do you get many JWs over here? You got some, yeah. In the UK, it happens because people on, in the UK, a lot of people are, are living at home on their own and they're lonely. And somebody bothers to knock on the door and take an interest in them. And that's how they grow in the UK. I want to say, why isn't the church knocking on the doors and taking an interest in people? You know, we've got the truth. 
we've got something far more enriching than the enslaving message that you've got to keep doing a lot of hours of door knocking and then you might actually get a place on the earth, never the heaven, because that's full already. Yeah? Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't get on to talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. Pray for, the, pray for the Jehovah's Witnesses. So the 1,000 years doesn't have to be taken literally. It could just be a symbol, and I think it is, for the church age. Again, the period when Jesus ascends into heaven, between that and when he returns. That would mean that verses 1 to 6 of chapter 20 don't follow on from chapter 19. It's not chronological. But actually, we're going over old ground again. But that would fit with Revelation, wouldn't it? Because we've seen that many times. We've seen these cycles where we go, we're here again. Yes? And that's the whole point, isn't it? It's not meant to be chronological. Verse 2 talks about Satan being bound. Well, Paul in Colossians 2, verse 15 says that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the spiritual powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus himself, do you remember, speaks about binding the strong man in his works of casting out demons and seeing the coming of the kingdom of God. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks of a force of restraint over the power of evil which is active during the church age and which will be removed at the end. So those who take this amillennialist view argue that it's through the cross of Jesus that the devil has been disarmed. And that now as the church proclaims the good news of Jesus, people are able to see and believe in a way that they couldn't have before. And that's what's being described as Satan being bound. His influence is being, has been taken away from him. Now we're able to plunder the kingdom of darkness. And we're able to see people converted from darkness into light. Because Satan has been bound at the cross. You see? That's what John is describing in verses 1 to 6. Now, I don't know if you find that convincing or not. You can come back at me if you like a little later. Whatever view you take, though, the main point is actually verse 10. Have a look at verse 10 of chapter 20 with me. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In other words, whatever you do with this a thousand years, there will come a point when the devil's reign and when his power is finished, it's over. He can inflict no more damage anymore. He's finally defeated. And not just the devil, but all evil and death are thrown into the lake of fire too. The dead are now raised. And everyone now appears before the great white throne. The throne of judgment. The end of chapter 20. There's no more serious scene, I think, in the whole of the Bible. As those whose names are not recorded in the book of life are also thrown into the lake of fire. It shows us, friends, that what we do with God And what we do with the gospel, what we do with Jesus, is serious. We are accountable for what we do in God's world, in the way that we live, in the way that we treat Jesus Christ, his son. And our only hope is if our names are written in that book of life. Not because of us, but because of the Jesus, the lamb who died, that we might overcome. Finally, we come. To Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. 
And finally we see a beautiful bride. Finally, it's the wedding day. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, as a minister of a church, I get to marry many beautiful women. (laughs) It's a great honor. I don't mean they become my wives. It means I get to officiate at their weddings. And I have to say, I have never yet seen an ugly bride. Never. I mean, on the wedding day, as that lady walks down the aisle, very often, it happens very often, the bridegroom, you know, turns around, and he'll be so overwhelmed. Sometimes, you know, there are tears streaming down these, you know, these big tough guys, you know. (laughs) And actually, there they are, they're seeing this lady who's willing to commit themselves (laughs) for life to this guy. You know, and they're humbled by this, aren't they? And there are tears streaming down their face. It's very moving. Weddings are moving, aren't they? Don't you think? Well, I think they are. All the women are saying yes. All the women are mopping their faces, and the men are just sitting there going, no, I can't stand them. (laughs) I always think, the men are sitting there thinking, how long is this thing going to go on for? (laughs) So I can get home and watch the sport. (laughs) No. Um, I've never yet seen an ugly bride. And one day, Jesus is going to be married to his church. And he will have before him the people who are beautiful, with no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We will stand before him washed and in white robes and we will be perfect just imagine that imagine your husband or your wife perfect isn't that amazing wouldn't that be a miracle (laughs) (laughs) and the day is coming when God's people all of God's people will be gathered from every tribe and language and nation and will be prepared Prepared to meet the bridegroom. It's a fantastic picture in chapters 21 and 22. And God makes absolutely everything new. It's sparkling. Heaven comes down to earth. So I don't know what the 144,000 for the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to do. Anyway, sorry, no, but you know, if our hope was that we go to heaven, well, heaven comes down to earth. It doesn't matter. God comes down to us. He makes his home. He's dwelling amongst us. Because he hears, verse 3, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Several times it said, God's going to be here amongst you, not removed from you, not up there. You won't have to see him by faith anymore. You will see him face to face. You will see him yourself. Faith will give way to sight. You won't need faith anymore. 
And in this new Jerusalem, notice, what is not there? Look at verse 4. No more tears. You know, I do a children's talk on heaven for our children. I say, look, there's going to be no more hankies. Won't need hankies anymore. They're gone. And what else are we told? There'll be no more death. There'll be no more hearses. Do you have hearses? A hearse in which you put the, the coffin? No more hearses anymore. We've got two undertakers, two funeral directors in our church. And uh, their faces always drop when I say there'll be no more hearses. <laughs> Sorry, guys. You'll be out of business. <laughs> what are we told? There'll be no more pain. Sorry, doctors. There'll be no more hospitals. All going. The old order of things has passed away. There's no temple. Look at verse 22. Isn't that great? I didn't see a temple in the city. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You don't need a temple anymore when the God whose presence you're trying to mediate in a building, and that's the whole point of a temple, turns up. (laughs) And he's there permanently. You don't need to go to a temple to try and meet him and get through to him. He's there. No more temple. No more light. Verse 23, the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The brilliance of God will light up the whole place. Wow. There'll be no more sin, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Because that's the trouble with this wonderful new city, isn't it? You think it's all fantastic and wonderful. But what happens if it all happens again? You know, there's another tree. (laughs) Oh, don't do that. Do you ever do that? Do you ever say to people, you know, there they are, just about to take an apple from the supermarket. And I tap them on the shoulder. I say, don't do that. That's how it all started. (laughs) Actually, it was a a durian. Do you realize that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're not told are we but I'm sure that I'm sure now that I've eaten it <laughs> that was the real fruit of the tree <laughs> no more sin you know none of this is, will ever be under threat again it's not going to happen because there's going to never be any more sin and notice there'll be no curse either verse 3 of 22 chapter 22 verse 3 no longer will there be any curse we're not under the curse anymore praise God for that we don't inherit all that went wrong from our mother and father who inherited it from their mother and father who inherited it from their mother and father all the way back to Adam and Eve thank goodness for that and what is there so that's what's not there negatively so what is there You know, you can describe a place, can't you, by what's not there. You know, I can tell you, I walked past a beautiful house yesterday, and there there were no windows there. There was no door there. There were no walls there. It's not sounding like a very good place to live, is it? You know, you can describe negatively somewhere, can't you? But now positively, what is there? Verse 3. Do you notice that? What's there in verse 3? Sorry? Hello? What's there? Somebody, somebody shouted out. 
the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. God's throne, in other words, he will set up his own dwelling place, his own kingdom right there. And what else are we told in verse 2? What else will be there? The tree of life. When was the last time we found, we heard that of the tree of life? Genesis chapter 3, when we were banished from the garden so that we couldn't get to the tree of life. Why was that? Because God realized he'd now have to put a limit on each of our lives and the amount of damage that any one of us could do in this world. So he cut life short. Now, now we've got access to the tree of life, so it means we can live forever. What is there to do in this place? That's the trouble, isn't it? Some, pe- some people think, oh, it's going to be so boring. We'll be sitting on clouds, strumming harps. <laughs> and if that's it, well, I mean, oh, dear me, forget it. I don't want to be there. That's what Bertrand, 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 uh, not Bertrand Russell, George Bernard Shaw said. He said, you know, heaven, as conventionally conceived, is a, is a place so boring, so dull, so inane, that nobody's ever been able to describe a day in heaven, though plenty of people have been able to describe a day at the seaside. I want to say George Bernard Shaw, he's dead now so he can't hear me, but George Bernard Shaw, why didn't you ever read Revelation 21 and 22? Because it's not boring. This is boring. This is life. What will we do? Verse, verse 3 of chapter 22. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And what will happen? His servants will serve him. There's a lovely prayer one of the old Anglican collects. Whom to serve is life eternal. And actually, as we, find, as we serve God, we discover life. We won't run out of things to do. It'll just be a joy to serve him. To think I can serve the living God, we'll do that now. We'll carry on doing it. No reason why we shouldn't. And verse 4, what else will we do? We will see his face. We will see his face. Do you remember in the Bible how Moses is told, no one can see me and live. But now we can. Then we will. We'll be able to gaze on him. And we won't cringe in terror. We'll fall at his feet in adoration and love. And we'll be with him. Verse 5, we'll be able to rule with him forever and ever. Just let that sink in. What will it be like? John can only hint at these things, can't he? That God has laid up for those who love him. C.S. Lewis ends his Narnia books with a paragraph that I think captures the bliss of this new beginning. This is what he writes. He writes, The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. For us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story 
which no one on earth has read and which goes on forever and ever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. What will it be like at the end of time, at the end of suffering, at the end of persecution, at the end of standing for Jesus in a world that hasn't liked you, the world that's despised you, a world that's scorned you, a world that's minimized you? What will it be like to look on the one who gave himself for you, who loved you, and went to the cross because he loved you? Isn't this the world we ache for? You know, don't you long for this? That will be heaven. That will be our coming home. Because we don't belong here. We belong with him. And God is preparing that world. The Lord Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. One day he'll bring it. And you and it and he will be reunited. Well, Revelation closes with an epilogue. In verses 6 to 20, Jesus says, I am coming soon. And the cry of verses 17 and 20 of John and the Holy Spirit of the church all comes back, come Lord Jesus. You know, if this is what you're going to bring, if this is what's going to come, if this is what's waiting for us, come. Please, come. Let it come now. And the book closes, verse 21, with the much needed grace of the Lord Jesus. That's not Mercy's sister. Mercy and Grace. I think that's a great names for you. two sisters. Isn't that wonderful? I've just been getting to know Mercy. That's not your sister, however wonderful she is. But it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ which we so desperately need, his strength, to enable us to persevere right to the end. So when you've grasped this vision, when you've seen that this is what the world is coming to, what will you do? Well, you'll not lose your love for God and your passion for him and his gospel. You'll not give up in the face of persecution. You'll not give in to immorality or error. You'll keep the words of the prophecy and you'll patiently endure and you'll long for Jesus' return and for his glorious kingdom and you will cry with all of God's people, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen.